Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. It's an honor to be here this morning. Good morning. Hi. Hello. Hi. It's, uh, it's such a privilege to be here. The, the moment that uh, the email came through from Gianna asking about uh, just some help, some pulpit supplies, somebody to, to come in and, and share for a bit, I was like, man, yes, absolutely. I would love to get an opportunity to be here, not just for one week, but for, for three. We get three weeks to walk through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, one of... Um, my favorite and probably one of the most important pieces of scripture that, uh, that we could possibly uh, encounter. Uh, I was having lunch with a buddy on Friday and we were talking about, uh, he, he asked like, what, what's a sermon for? <laughs> what's the point of a sermon? All right, what is the point of a sermon? And we had a good little back and forth conversation about it. And, and I, I came back to this point that I've I've thought about for a number of years, and like a sermon is just like it's sort of a weekly manna, right? There's a very daily nature to the walk with Jesus, to our walks with Jesus, but there's also this like weekly time that we have together. And sermons aren't necessarily supposed to be these life changing events, sometimes they are, and that's wonderful, but really it's just nourishment. It's, it's us coming together and encountering truths that we wouldn't have otherwise encountered, right? We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have confronted the teachings of Jesus this morning had we not just like put ourselves under the teaching. And, and when I say under the teaching of Jesus, I say you and me together sitting under the teaching of Jesus. I just happen to be the one up here, up here talking, but I, I see us together on a journey of, of submitting to what Jesus is having to say for us this morning. The sermon is a moment to remember his grace, to confront our lack of faith, right? Our lack of faith this last week, but to look forward to opportunities for faithfulness in the, in the coming week, in the, in the ups and in the downs. The sermon is a moment to our gathering. It's a moment to be reminded that, that God goes to lowly places. God stoops to lowly places to meet us and yet calls us with a very lofty calling. And we're gonna be looking at part of that calling today in the Sermon of the Mount. Um, my, one of my favorite hobbies, my, my longest and most enduring hobby is bird watching. I am um, a birder. Uh, I have to say that carefully because people hear that in all different kinds of ways. Birder, is that like a burning? Burning? I've had people think I was saying burning things. People think I say burger. Like, no, birder, the, the noun bird with an E-R on it. Uh, so it's bird watching, but it's like the very obsessive, like hobby side of, of, of bird watching. Um, like you can, yeah, it's, it's a problem sometimes. <clears throat> And so as I was thinking about, I was just trying to think about an image or an illustration or something to tie together what we're going to be talking about today. And so I, I naturally, my mind naturally wandered to birds. And I, I shared, Nathan, could you put up the first picture? This bird right here, this is a, an American dipper. Actually, could you go to the other one first? 
uh, American dippers are real are real difficult uh, to photograph. They they uh, in addition to birding, I like to do some photography too. Uh, they, they're notoriously difficult to photograph. One, because they live in like really dark, dank places uh, along like riverbeds and, and whatnot, but they also like rarely stop moving. And so I had a brief moment. Jen and I were out on our uh, honeymoon uh, up in Bellingham this last summer, and we were wandering along this creek, and there, there was one out. And I was just sitting out here in the, in the open, and then it sat still for a little while, and it let me crawl up for a little bit. Got to take a picture of one. Dippers are... Amazing little creatures. Here, you can go to the go to the other photo. Dippers are unique because they're um, they're a songbird. Think like robin or sparrow or whatnot, but they're completely aquatic. Uh, dippers are specialists of mountain streams. They they live in fast moving rivers. Anywhere uh, like around here, anywhere you run into like a fast moving stream with enough like few little rocks exposed for something to sit on, there's a decent chance that that you'll run into an American dipper. All right, kiddos, kiddos. I know, I know you get to be, you get to be in the service today. So I, I, I need to ask you this question. This, this bird is called an American dipper. What's the bird called? All right, excellent. That, oh, that was beautiful. Uh, we're going to come back to this at the end of the service, and I'm going to, this is going to be your quiz, all right? I'm going to ask you what this bird, bird is called, and you're going to be ready. We'll just do it one more time. What's it called? Mm, and all God's people became birders. Oh, we love that. Ah, we, we love that. The, the cool thing about an American Dipper is you see it here, swimming in the little, little bird this big, swimming in a fast, fast moving stream. But dippers have the same quality of a feather as a duck. So a dipper can swim in a stream and come up completely dry. A dipper can, can swim in water without getting soaked. And as I was thinking about what we need, what we need today, we need Christians who can swim in the water, <laughs> literally on the, way, <laughs> on the way to church. <laughs> Insert joke about taking the ark to church, right? Christians who can swim in the water of society, in the water of culture, still live there, thrive there, without getting soaked by it, without looking so much like it, right? And we have in our text this morning and in the next couple of weeks, um, a blueprint, if you will, not an easy one, not a, not a terribly, it's straightforward, but not simple at all. But in the Sermon on the Mount here, why, why look at the Sermon on the Mount? And for, uh, very, like, first and foremost, I got to say, the Sermon on the Mount is too much to deal with in three weeks. And I did that on purpose because there's so many great juicy details in the Sermon on the Mount. But sometimes we get so locked in on details that we forget, we forget the forest. We, we like the pineals. We like the trees. We love it. But, but sometimes we forget the bigger picture. We get focused on the little facet of the painting and, and, and forget that it's a broader a broader movement going on. And the broad swath of what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is everything that we need so desperately right now. It's a bit bizarre to re-preach uh, a sermon, right? This is Jesus, arguably Jesus' most like famous, best-known set of teachings. So it's a little bit bizarre to re-preach what Jesus has already done perfectly. Uh, but I think it's important. I think it's important to encounter this set of scripture. Uh, and John Stott, uh, pastor and theologian of the uh, 20th century, uh, said it this way. I think this is why 
it's important. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though it is arguably the least understood, and certainly it's the least obeyed. I like the three levels of that, right? There's, there's knowing, facts in the head, we can do that. Like we can, we can sit here in seats, we can gather in small groups and whatnot, we can read on our own, we can know. But the movement from knowing to understanding, that's some work, right? That takes some effort. And then the next step to obedience, to practice. Could we have a better description of the shallow nature of our interaction with the teachings of Jesus? We know we get stuff in our heads. We rarely take time to fully understand, to let it sink into our our minds and our hearts. And even when we begin to understand, we rarely venture into the uncomfy world of practice. We like to follow Jesus right up to the point that he makes us uncomfortable, right? Right to the point that he reaches into us a, a little pocket of our lives where it's like, nah, I want that to be off limits. Right? And I think in this particular moment of American Christianity, we need to be honest about our like need for a dr- dramatic kind of realigning of priorities. Right? A reorienting of values. We need new values. We need new practices. There are studies continuing to come out over the last few years that show that party affiliation is a more significant self-descriptor that people use than anything else. For the first time in our country's history, people are more likely to say, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat before they say anything else about who they are. And that includes religion. That includes, I'm a Republican, also I'm a Christian. I'm a Democrat. I'm also And in a, in a moment where uh, that's the cultural water that we're swimming in, I, I worry in moments that it seems like Christians are just are getting soaked. Christians are swimming in that same water, don't look a whole lot different. We conform rather than get into what Jesus offers here, which is a Christian counter culture. It's a new way to be human. Another way of thinking about it. If you know that music reference, new way to be human, come talk to me afterwards. We'll be instant friends. If not, that's fine. Sermon on the Mount is here because of the human impulse to distort that which God has made good. Jesus is not talking about a whole lot of new stuff here. He's taking old stuff and giving it a little bit of a, a a new dress up in some ways, but we have a a tendency to take that which God has called us to and distort it, right? I also included in the the title of this series, it's the spiritual formation of, and, and the Sermon on the Mount. Spiritual formation and the Sermon on the Mount. What is spiritual formation? I'm professor, I'm an instructor of biblical studies and Christian formation at Bushnell University, and so I always like to take a moment to talk about what is spiritual formation, and Simply put, it's like, you and I know (laughs) that our bodies are formed in certain ways, right? I had had pizza like six out of the last eight days. Uh, And I just thought I'd be be, uh, vulnerable with you. Uh, And so I went on a run yesterday and I'm like, oh, my body has been formed in a certain, in a certain, in a pizza-esque way. I am more like a pepperoni than I am like a runner right now. 
But we know this, right? We know that our habits, whether eating or exercise or what, whatever it is, we know that our physical habits help form the way, eventually form the way that our, our bodies feel and develop and whatnot. But the, the thing is, the same thing is true of that immaterial part of us, our heart, our soul, our spirit. And yet, yet we don't often think about it. We can carry along with various habits and, and the patterns of our days and, and go along and, and not really think too terribly critically about what it is that, how are we being formed? How is, how is my heart different than it was a year ago? Your heart is different than it was a year ago. Have you paid attention to that? Spiritual formation is that effort to, to pay attention, to start paying attention. What can I do to, in Christian spiritual formation to... Let my heart become more like Jesus. Let my heart be formed, be formed into the inner person of Jesus. So how is then the, the Sermon on the Mount calling us to that? Well, so, so, so we're going to do three weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 this week, Matthew 6 next week, Matthew 7 uh, the following week, Matthew 7. I hope you hang around for because you get to hear why birding is actually the, the most, uh, not the most holy, but is the Jesus-sanctioned uh, hobby, but uh, that is neither here nor there. Dude, wouldn't stop talking about birds. Like, gosh. <laughs> Matthew 5, the way of Jesus is upside down, and the way of Jesus is inside out. I, I want to cruise through Matthew 5. My, my style is to kind of have my nose in the text. I don't have a whole lot to say that doesn't come straight from, um, straight from the text. So my style is to have, have my nose in the text. So if you're, you have your Bible, you could open up to Matthew 5. I'm going to have most of the scriptures up here on the screen. First and foremost, the, the way of Jesus is upside down. It looks different. Matthew takes the first five chapters, takes the whole breadth of the of that whole gospel to show that Jesus is turning the world upside down, turning the Old Testament on its head. Let's look at the beginning of Matthew 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside. And I just got to say, as an outdoorsy introvert, that's sort of my life verse right there. Uh, Jesus saw the crowds and he went up to a mountainside. I was like, that is... Absolutely. I can get behind that kind of Jesus. Saw the crowds and went up to a mountainside. What did he do? He sat down. Sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus didn't stand to teach. He didn't, he did in other instances, but right here, he didn't stand. He didn't need to assert his authority necessarily. Spoiler alert, very last verse of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Matthew is describing what just happened. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were all amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. But Jesus didn't come out saying, I have authority. No, he comes and sits down. He wants to have a conversation. He sits down and his disciples come to him. He starts this conversational teaching and he starts with the Beatitudes, a very, very um, well-known section of scripture, but again, well-known, maybe not well-understood, definitely hard to do. I want to show you something here. Here's the Beatitudes. There's a little literary device called inclusio. It's just when a passage or a little portion of scripture begins and ends with the same idea, it's a clue that the whole thing is about that one idea. Notice verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the last verse say? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for, same thing, theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. And in other words, whatever we do with interpreting these verses, we have to do it all through the lens of this is God's kingdom. This is Jesus announcing his kingdom. This is the way of life in Jesus' economy. That's what it's all about. So if we come up with some interpretation that falls outside of us following Jesus within his kingdom, within his loving rule, uh, then we've missed it, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is Jesus riffing off of uh, Isaiah 61, which is an announcement of God's deliverance for his people. And his people in that instance are poor in their mourning. Downtrodden. There's no tear that any one of us cries that doesn't get seen by Jesus, that doesn't ultimately get mended. It may not feel like it's getting mended right now, but it's seen. Jesus in his kingdom, in his good way, is seeing you and seeing me in our lowliest moments. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know what meek means? Meek... Meek is not sheepish. Meek just means like not using your position to advantage, to your advantage. Meek people can have power, but they don't use it to better their status. They use it for others. Those are the ones who inherit the earth or in the Old Testament language, inherit the land, the Eretz, inherit the, the land. That's the the ongoing blessing that God has for his people. Those, those are the ones who have understood the kingdom rightly, the meek, those who readily give up that which they could claim as their own. You could take your position of power and, and go towards a comfy life where you're separated from it all. Meek, the meek people are those who have the position of power and do something for others with it. That this is the way of Jesus. This is the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. I immediately think of uh, C.S. Lewis's famous quote from uh, Surprised by Joy, where he says, if you, if you aim at heaven, if we aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you end up with neither. How much aiming at earth do we do? We, we do? we go to such extravagant lengths to try to be a little bit happy here and now, but the hunger and the thirst for the righteousness of God is left at bay. When we're soaked in the water of society, we're, we're aiming for a happy that's here and now. And it's not that Jesus doesn't want us to be happy. This whole idea of being blessed all the way along, Makarios, blessed, 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 blessed. I, I have grown up, I grew up in a, a context where we were very adamant about saying blessed, being blessed is much, a much bigger idea than being happy. Um, and that's good, that's true, right? Um, but we never really took the time to say it can also include being happy. <laughs> Do you know that the joy of Jesus can be yours here and now on a daily basis? He's, just, he's with us when we're poor in spirit. He's with us when we mourn, but he's there to bring about blessing as well. He wants to fill. Will we trust that? 
Will we trust that when we orient our desires elsewhere that he's going to, tr- he's going to fulfill? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is a theological point, but it's more a psychological one, right? It's hard to know what it's like to receive mercy until we've given it. We, we return to this idea in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer. We'll get back to it next week. It's hard to be a person who gets to receive mercy if you, don't, if you haven't gone through the tough work, the tough inner work of extending that mercy, extending goodness to somebody who doesn't deserve it. We like to be recipients of mercy. We like that. Extending it? That's harder. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is Jesus using Psalm 24. Who can ascend to the hill of God to go worship him there? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who hasn't been stained by. The one who who lets God do purifying work. It's not about us being perfect, having it all buttoned up. We'll get to that in a second. That's not what it's, it's the one who says, I'm going to let my hungers and my thirsts be formed by the righteousness of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, but the peacemakers. Peacemakers are troublemakers, you know? <laughs> peacemakers, they get their hands dirty. We can peacekeep. We can come in and keep the status quo for sure, but the call of Jesus is something deeper. It's something uh, more uncomfy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. You want to know what the sons and daughters of God are like? They're the ones who are out with their dirty hands, making peace where there should not be peace by human understanding. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who don't get to hear Merry Christmas on their coffee cups. Right. Mm. We, we like to think ourselves persecuted when we are slightly inconvenienced. Blessed are those who are persecuted. One of the most healthy things that I think we could do as Christians is to readily read the stories of, be praying for, be aware of the many, many places in the world right now where it's unsafe to be a Christian. It might get mildly uncomfy for us for a few moments here and there, but we like to claim persecution in places where it's just not true. Let's get over ourselves. Blessed are you. We can go on to verse 11. Or, Blessed are you. He, he turns you just imagine Jesus in this like circle with his disciples and he's blessed are the peacemakers blessed and then he looks he makes eye contact he said blessed are you blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me because that gives you a chance to get back at them no rejoice and be glad because great is your reward that's going to be the reality stop trying to get out of it Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. There's our gladness. There's our happiness. There's our our permission to be happy alongside being blessed. We have Jesus is upside down. There's a common thread in, in each of these beatitudes. There's a handful of common threads, I think. But but one in particular is that of dependence. That of like I God God 
blesses the, the poor, that's a dependent state. Those who mourn, that it's a dependent state. Learning how to hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than try to... Jesus is constantly pushing us towards, like, stop trying to do it yourself. Learn healthy dependence. This is, the Beatitudes are about Jesus' kingdom ethics. The way, the way up is always down. The way down is always up. The strong are always brought low in Jesus' program. And the lowly are always brought high. That is the way of Jesus in the world. And so the question we get is simply this. Will we trust it? Will we trust that the kingdom of God is the, is the thing that we are actually called to? That it's the loft? It feels so difficult, I understand. But will we trust that a life of dependence, a life of maybe being maybe poor in spirit life is my calling right now? Will we trust it? Will we take Jesus seriously? Will we take Jesus seriously? When we do, we're salt and light. <laughs> Upside down folks are salt and light in this world. Uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, we can, we can think of salt as just a general gloss for like a good to society. The, it, Jesus turns and says, you are the salt of the earth. You, you people who have bought into this kingdom, this upside down way of life, you are a fantastic benefit to society. You are salt of the earth. You're also light. Witnesses, gospel tellers, good news vessels. How so? And this is where it gets uncomfy, right? You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is all moving towards us being good witnesses. Witnesses, though, not in rightness, not in the winning of arguments, but in weakness. That's what the, that's what the Beatitudes are all about, that dependence piece. We're called to weakness, why? It doesn't seem to make sense. And Jesus is like, yes, it doesn't seem to make sense very much. That's what we got to get into our heads. This lowly, this upside down, this weakness is the way to faithfulness. That, that is what we are being called to. We are called to be witnesses, not in rightness, but in weakness. It's not that we don't care about truth. That's not what I'm saying. It's not that we shouldn't stand for what is right. But we do so much arguing and so little weakness practicing, <laughs> right? I go back to, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil <laughs> against you. Not because that's a, a springboard for retaliation, but because that's the way, the way of Jesus is going to put you. The, the way of Jesus is upside down, and then it is inside out. The way of Jesus is inside out. Look at this section on the fulfillment of the law. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. Okay? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Play ra'o is the word Matthew uses here. It's the word 
just like pregnant with all sorts of good meaning. Jesus came to fulfill, to, to tie up the loose ends that the Old Testament story didn't quite feel like it was complete. And there's a reason, and that reason is Jesus. And he, and he comes to fulfill, and he, he's, in some senses, he turns it on its head, changes it a little bit. But mostly he's just there to fill it up, to fulfill that which has been taught all Along. Don't think that I've come to abolish it. Jesus is very clear. The, the Old Testament law, it's not necessarily binding still. Not in the same way that it was in the Old Testament, but it is still relevant. It, it provides a very helpful template for everything that Jesus is saying. Jesus undoes it. He makes it harder, by the way. Makes it more difficult. God of, God of Old Testament is so strict, and God of New Testament is a God of love. Like, that's... Eh, that's not very good. That's not very good uh, way to, to read, our, read our Bibles. You know, I, I like to walk my students at Bushnell through the trajectory of like the number of commandments in Scripture. We start with one in Genesis, Genesis one. This commandment to steward life. Exodus twenty is our ten commandments. By the time those ten commandments, those ten, ten commandments are a call to a good and full kingdom life. By the time we get to Leviticus. 630, 630 laws. Uh, but do you know the thing about 630 laws? Life is a lot easier that way because you, you don't have to think about much, right? All you got to do is remember your 630 laws. I think it's a 600, 617, and it's one I apply in this particular situation. But there's not much, you don't have to grow in wisdom when there's 630. In, in 30 laws, because you either do the thing or you don't do the thing that you're being called to, right? Jesus reduces it <laughs> down to love your neighbor, love yourself, love your God. <laughs> love God, love neighbor, love self. Life is a lot trickier when there's only <laughs> two commands. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth, not, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear until everything is accomplished. You can skip down to verse 20 there. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we go, hold up, wait, what? I, I thought the Pharisees were the bad guys. Well, yes, Jesus likes to harp on the Pharisees time and time again. But righteousness, in a technical sense, righteousness was kind of their thing, right? But the Sermon on the Mount reminds us time and time again, there is a wrong way to go about trying to be righteous. There is a wrong way. And the Pharisees excelled in that wrong way. It can be kind of tricky. Uh, um, we can know this passage, but moving to understanding can be a little bit, a little bit tricky. Um, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're righteous. Isn't that sort of backwards? Well, we have to be careful what we, what we think there. The, the Old Testament law, it's important to remember, those Ten Commandments, that comes in Exodus 20. What comes before Exodus 20? The deliverance. The Exodus, the God saying, you are my people and I'm delivering you into a safe and good and wholesome place. D 
deliverance first, naming as my people first, and then come the commandments. That has always been the way God operates. God has never said, I need you to clean it up. I need you to get it together. I need you to do all these things just right, and then you will be acceptable. That has never been the way God has worked. God has always said, you beloved person, you made in the image of God person, you are lovely to me and you are mine. And now go live. Now go live as if that's true. Now go live in the goodness and the fullness. And that's exactly the way God continues to operate all throughout the New Testament. So righteousness is never an entrance exam, right, for, for the faith. Rather, it's a fruit out of it. So then what does Jesus mean by your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees? Well, we get that answer in the next section. Starting in verse 21 through 48, we get a few examples here of what Jesus means by this new righteousness. It's a new law. It's, it, God's giving a new law. Think about Moses walking up, on uh, Moses, the leader of a ragtag group of, of people, walking up onto a mountain. He receives the law. Jesus comes on the scene. He's leading this ragtag group of people. And what does he do first thing? He goes right up onto a mountain. He delivers a new law. Matthew has given us a new Moses, right? This is one of the ways Jesus fulfills all everything in the law and the prophets. He's the new Moses, and he comes and he gives us a new law. He doesn't change it, he just makes it a little bit tougher. <laughs> may, may you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, which, let's just stop right there, a good commandment, right? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's continue to not. <clears throat> you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, and we get these set of antitheses, these set of opposites. You've heard it said, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, angry, will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus immediately goes to the heart issue. It's like that whole no, don't murder people thing, that's still in place. But that, that was, the way to get there is to check the anger in your heart first. Jesus knows what has proven to be true over centuries and centuries and centuries of time. He knows that there's this heart and habit cycle. There's a heart and habit cycle that goes, in, goes on in our lives. When it comes to our being formed as spiritual beings, if you want to know where your heart is, and Jesus says this in chapter 6, if you want to know where your heart is, look where your habits are. Do a habit audit of, of your life. What, what's the stuff you spend the most time doing? And he knows that as we begin to shift our heart, as we begin to change our heart, habits follow. And so sometimes we just need a new habit to help change our heart. And sometimes we need a change of heart to, to form our habits. It's a constant cycle. It's, it's not even so much a cycle as it's like a spiral. Constantly changing heart, constantly changing habits, constantly changing heart, constantly changing habits. It's easy to say, yeah, I'm not a murderer. But how often do we step back and check, where, where's the anger festering in the heart right now? Where's the blocked goal that is causing me frustration? Jesus always ups the ante. He makes it more difficult. In, in the realm of murder, he, he 
points to the heart and says, don't be angry. And in the realm of adultery, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, good. Yeah, we should affirm that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. It's like, you want to know how you get to a life of adultery? It's just by letting lust fester. The, the baseline <laughs> metric of not killing, like the Old Testament law is not satisfied. The, the, the law of Jesus is not satisfied simply by not killing. And when it comes to, <laughs> when it comes to immorality and, and adultery, <laughs> Jesus called to us in this area of our life. It's not just that we check a, bar, check a box and say, oh, did not commit adultery this week. No, Jesus is far more interested, not just in the outside practice, but in the level of the heart. Where's, where's our heart? Where, where are the places that we're likely to let lust fester? To objectify We can let ourselves off the hook when we simply look at the outside practice and we don't think about the heart. Jesus is always thinking about the heart. And then there's a, a couple points of, of like application. Jesus applies this uh, measure to, th- these uh, principles to divorce. There's a much higher standard for divorce. We like, we, we like loopholes, right? And the Old Testament had a couple and Jesus is like, you missed the point. You missed the point on divorce, on, on oaths. In, in the Mishnah, which was kind of the ruling law of the land in, in these days, there were so many um, different ways to give an oath. If you swore towards Jerusalem, it meant one thing. But if you swore of Jerusalem or for Jerusalem, it meant something else. And Jesus is like, seriously, you have missed the point. Mean what you say, say what you mean. Like, tell the truth. Truth matters. Stop equivocating. <laughs> Right? It's a way, it, it, it's an inside out practice, right? It's a, it's a look at your heart. Do you, do you value the truth? And then revenge. It's a bummer that in the life that Jesus has called us to, fairness is not a helpful metric for faithfulness. We're not called to a life of just making things fair. Uh, because often we like to just like make sure that things are fair for us, not, not so concerned about for others. But fairness is not a metric for faithfulness. And if our hearts are truly being formed inside out, if our lives are being formed in the way of Jesus, uh, we get to these kind of annoying verses here at the end. Starting in verse 43, we're called to enemy love. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which is going to happen. Remember, that's going to happen. Um, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Jesus is saying, if you only ever invite over to dinner, those who can invite you back. 
What is that? What good is that? Everybody else can do that. Everybody else does do that. That's just swimming in the water and getting soaked. Nothing distinctive, nothing Jesus-y necessarily. I'm not saying don't invite people over for dinner. Do that, have fellowship. But Jesus is pushing us. He said, you, you have to love those who you don't think you can love. To my left-leaning brothers and sisters, like, you have to love those on the other side of the aisle. And to my right-leaning brothers and sisters, you have to love those on the other side of the aisle. We've done this silly, silly thing in our culture where we've let disagreement turn into disdain, right? It's not what Jesus is calling us to. Learn how to disagree and still love the bejesus out of somebody. Even, I mean, love Lakers fans, even. Jeez. I mean, I mean Lord, Lord knows they need it right now. I mean, they're struggling. Yeah, praise the Lord. <clears throat> no, no, love. We're called to love all. Verse 48. Be perfect. <laughs> As if we weren't already overwhelmed by, by the standards. Uh, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if we've been reading along with our Old Testaments, this command doesn't actually strike us as all that odd. Be holy as I am holy. That's a regular refrain throughout the Old Testament. That's, that's a call. That is the standard. And it feels impossible because it is impossible. But it's, you know what? It's also not impossible. Be, why? Because Jesus is there. <laughs> if, at, if at any point along the way, We've learned something today. It's that dependence upon Jesus is the only way. It's the only way. Be perfect. Pursue that. Pursue that holy life before Jesus. Pursue that utter dependence. I, I want to uh, leave today with um, just a couple of simple um, uh, pretty open-ended questions and intentionally open-ended. We got three weeks to do this. I'm, I'm taking, the long, taking the long view. But a couple open-ended questions here. First one is this. What part of Jesus' call to an upside-down, inside-out life do we need to take more seriously? Which part? Which part are we most inclined to just say... Um, Okay, I'm going to leave it at self. I'm going to leave it at knowledge. There, not move on to understanding, and definitely not move on to obedience. Is there is there something that sticks out? Is there a line in the Beatitudes? Is there something? What what do you, what do we need to take more seriously? And finally, how will the lofty demands of the Christian life, the be perfect because I'm perfect demands of the Christian life, the go love the people that don't seem lovable demands? of the Christian life. How is that going to drive you to dependence on Jesus? How is that going to drive you back to that manna, back to that dailiness, that daily, Jesus, come and do this because I can't do it on my own situation. How are you going to let it do it? Nathan, can we get the, the, the dipper back, or I mean the bird back? Kiddos, you did so great. You did better than me. You're good work. What, what, what's this bird? Oh, Daphne, on it. Love it. Yes. 
Oh, I knew I like yes. Yeah. American Dipper. Can we can we learn to be people, to be Jesus followers who uh, who can swim in the water without getting soaked, who can who can buy into the countercultural, the upside down, the the weakness is the way up way of life that Jesus is calling us to. Can we do it? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, it feels like <laughs> you're calling us to more than we can do. Um, and you are, and you aren't. Um, so uh, make us uncomfortable. Let us be uncomfy and then come meet us in that. Come meet us with your mercy and your grace. and. Uh, may your spirit just guide us into places of obedience that we couldn't see ourselves getting to on our own because we couldn't get there on our own. Drive us to dependence. Drive us to a deep obedience to you that we've not known before. Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.